Hey all, welcome to the Common Good Podcast. It's January 27th today, which for us is a Friday. And if you keep really close tabs on when we do our live streams and podcasts, you might say, oh, I thought y'all weren't doing Fridays. But there's a reason we're talking today because it's January 27th, which is recognized as Holocaust Remembrance Day. And that is related to the uh, history of the discovery of what was going on in the Holocaust, which was connected to the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, which I know not enough to talk a lot about it. But the issue of what do we do and how do we think about the Holocaust, how it happened, we're now you know, um, approaching a, a stage in human history where the people most involved in that are aging out. And um, also on Monday is the 90th anniversary of the installing of Adolf Hitler in, in the German chancellorship. So a number of things happening around this period of time that cause us to not only remember what happened decades ago, but to recall what's happening today. So I'm Doug Padgett, that's Dan Dietrich, and we're so glad to have Rob Schenk here. Rob, you have been for me a real uh, guiding light in this work. Uh, we have similar enough histories and backgrounds and your own understanding of the Holocaust, the conditions in Germany in the 1930s and 40s, and the role that parts of society played that allowed those things to, to develop and to take place, including the role of the faith communities, is something that sits really dear to my, my heart. I think all of us in times like this, where you have a remembrance, sort of look and think, well, wh what would be similar today that we should be paying attention to? And what are the conditions that might be afoot now that start to look very similar to that? And that should be the point of a, of a commemorance. It shouldn't be just to think, well, that was the way things were once. Also to ask ourselves, how is it that that's the way things are now? So, um, Rob, tell us a little bit about how you got into all this, and then we'll just we'll just dive right into the role of uh, all of society, but also faith communities in this in this work. Sure. Well, first of all, it's nice to be with you, Doug and Dan, and I keep tabs on Common Good and all the good you guys are up to. So, bravo and bravissimo. Uh, for what you're doing to improve the world. And thanks for classing it up with a little Italian too. That's uh, impressive. <laughs> yeah. And, and we'll add Tikkun Olam uh, in Hebrew <laughs> today, in, working to repair the world. Yeah. And I know that's, that's uh, what you guys are doing. It, this subject for me, Doug, is very personal. One, because, uh, you know, it's born to a, Jewish-born father and a mother who converted to Judaism to marry my father. And I was raised in a nominally Jewish home. I would later make a choice to become a Christian, but that heritage is still very important to me. And part of that heritage was my own father's tutelage of his four children hmm. in the Holocaust why it happened, what happened, and uh, and how we are to act uh, in the face of persistent genocidal impulses in the world. So there are, you know, some real anchors. I brought some some mm. show and tell for you guys. Is that okay uh, on this broadcast? Please, yeah, yeah. Can I show you, for example, my namesake, my father's older brother, Captain Robert L. Shank, for whom I am named, uh, flew a record number of B-17 bombing missions over the European theater. 
And if you think about, you know, the, the whole war scenario is another discussion. But, you know, over the years, I've often thought about my namesake flying over mm. Nazi-occupied uh, Europe, Nazi Germany, and, you know, his own people were being mass exterminated underneath him. And, you know, he was doing what he could, how he could over in the, in the air. And, you know, just to think about the dynamics of that, he would earn the distinguished flying cross uh, after he got out of the service and survived miraculously. A lot of B-17 bomber pilots did not, uh, but he survived. And then he re-upped, went to Korea and died there uh, flying oh my. C-17. Wow. So he died in service to his country, and uh, my father gave me his name as an act of remembrance uh, for his brother. Wow. So that that's kind of a personal anchor to the whole story. Um, and then my own uh, father kept a, a contemporaneous scrapbook on the Holocaust, and bequeathed it to me uh, after his death. I, I kept it and I treasure it. And you can kind of see here oh the gosh. sort of clippings, including the horrifying discoveries uh, by the Allies when they liberated the camps in yeah. Germany. So we got an exhaustive education uh, all my growing up years in the Holocaust. And then we had survivors uh, in the family. So I remember people uh, sitting in my living room who had the tattooed numbers wow. uh, on their arms. So this is not theoretical to me. Wow. And, and it's one of the reasons why when I took a leave of absence from my ministry work in Washington, D.C. in 2009, I started looking uh, at what happened in Nazified Germany and Europe, particularly through the lens, as you're suggesting here, of the church. What were Christians doing uh, in the lead-up to the Nazi horrors during the genocidal uh, dictatorship of Adolf Hitler, and what did they do after the war? And I, I, I can't describe it as anything other than a mind-blowing experience looking into mm. all of that. Rob, before we get into that, could I ask you, growing up, when did your father start to talk about and teach you about the Holocaust? Was it something that was ever-present? Was it something that you reached a certain age and he sat you down and said, hey, we have to tell you some things about our family history and the evil we've experienced? What did that look like growing up? And how can other parents talk to their kids about this? Yeah, Dan, thank you for asking. Uh, I have a very vivid memory of my father, literally, it almost sounds like a a Kentucky bluegrass song, but placing my brother and me on his knees mm. 
I have an identical twin brother uh, who's recovering today from cancer surgery. Uh, his oh, name my. is Paul, and uh, I, uh, so I ask for your prayers on, on his behalf. But um, I remember, I must have been, we were twins, we must have been seven or eight years old, sitting on his uh, knees, and he said, I want to tell you about some terrible things that human beings did to, uh, to each other uh, in a period of time. And he was very careful how he unveiled it. Mm. You know, I do remember seeing some of these shocking images fairly early on. I probably mm. wasn't older than 10 when I saw the actual images of, you know, the aftermath of the mass exterminations and uh, the skeletal remains in the ovens and so forth. But the way dad tutored us on that, I was not afraid. I was very curious. Hmm. And the way he carefully, first of all, you know, he, he kind of prepped us. He said, you know, even when you're in school, sometimes kids who are friends or should be friends to each other do things that are cruel to one another. And we talk a little bit about that. And, you know, don't you think that when somebody's bullying somebody, that the people who know that's wrong should speak out and say something? Mm -hmm. And I remember that making eminent sense to me as a little kid. Yeah, of course, you know, somebody's pushing somebody around, somebody's, uh, you know, mocking or embarrassing somebody, or, uh, you know, somebody's doing something cruel. Yeah, you, you got to speak up. You, you got to say something for your friend, you know, and defend them. And he said, well, you know, that goes for grownups too. and And that's kind of how it unfolded. And then, of course, you know, we would learn about this uh, dictator, this very cruel man, uh, who did uh, very, very cruel things uh, to people who he didn't even know. And it's it was kind of framing up the real presence of evil mm. in the world. Mm. And I'm grateful to my dad for that education. There's a number of things about the realities of the 1930s and 40s in the world that shock people now. There's a sense and was a belief and still, I think this belief exists, that humanity's morality can grow. That we sort of move from a less civilized society where maybe you would look back on previous times of, you know, uh, of crusades or genocides and think, well, human civilization will grow out of that and we will be more sophisticated and we'll leave those kinds of things behind. And one of the shocks of the 1930s and 40s was to see that in a sophisticated uh, country like Germany and other nations that, that joined in the same efforts, um, that those societal developments did not produce the context in which people resisted the kinds of creeping evils that, that were coming to light. 
And it really shocked the, the morality uh, system, right? People said, if that kind of thing can happen there, then that's a real condemnation of the modern experiment of human development, right? Like we're, we're not where we, where we thought we were. There's something about the human capacity that your dad was saying to you that, that calls us to remember that uh, there's no amount of system structure that's just going to produce the impulse that people are going to do the right thing. Like that, that has to be developed separately from other advances, you know, technological advances or societal advances or democracy advances or any of these, any of the rest of these things that we want to believe will protect us from one another in the most, most extreme circumstances. And, and one of those forces is supposed to be the forces of faith and religion of, of all varieties. Everyone that I know of purports itself to heal the world, care for one another, protect the weak, do to others as you would have to yourself, some version of that's all over. And yet, not only did that not happen in Germany, it wasn't happening in the United States when it's true that we did not know in the United States all of the atrocities that were going on, but I had a pretty good idea about what was going on with, you know, the imprisonment of, of peoples, uh, including and especially Jews in Germany. And people in the United States didn't want to get involved, didn't want to do anything about it. There was a sense of that's over there, that's not us, you know, America first nationalism. Charles Lindbergh famously coining that phrase that, you know, came back to some of us in, in uh, recent years of America first and, uh, you know, close our borders and don't worry about the rest of the world, that kind of thing. Um, and the, the fact that religion didn't play its role um, is something that when I was growing up in, in my religious experience, like from my teenage years onward, we didn't spend a lot of time talking about that. We spent a lot of time talking about how America uh, was the good guys, you know, that our grandfathers went over and did the right thing and these other countries' grandfathers did the wrong things and we should take some exceptional pride in, in all of that. There wasn't a, a looking at the other networks and connections that we have that aren't just, you know, countries. In other words, what did the shared faith communities do in those locations that we feel so deeply connected to? So I'd be in seminary. People would very much want me to read the theology of German scholars, the theology of philosophers, but, and take all that truth and feel really connected to those, but not feel the same kind of connection to these other atrocities and all that were going on. Okay, that's a long ramble about sort of like my own coming to grips as a, you know, mid-50s-year-old person. Like, why did I, why did we not talk about the, the degree to which the communities I'm involved that are complicit in this, not just the saviors of this, right? That there was, there was some way in which we were involved. So... You, 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 you were struck with that much, much more deeply than, than I and you, your biography tells it. And you were, uh, you know, talking a bit about that. Um, do, do you have thoughts about that? Yeah, well, I sure do. And, and that's hardly a meaningless uh, rant, <laughs> Doug. You bring up some really crucial questions um, that all of us should ask, but particularly people of Christian faith. Uh, and formation. And since you mention it, and you happen to catch me in my studio at home, my study, I call it my, uh, where I keep, you know, my volumes on the shelf, keep me company. 
So I'm going to pull another one. Is that okay? If yeah, I just please. Yeah, please. Yeah. please do. Yeah. Uh, because this is worth, since you bring it up, this is worth mentioning. I hardly know a Christian clergy person, but particularly evangelical ministers, that happens to be my tribe, who don't have a copy of Gerhard Kittel's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament on their shelves. Every Bible college, every seminary in this country, and incidentally, from very conservative to very progressive, will have Gerhard Kittel's dictionary on their shelf. And I don't know about you guys, but when I was being trained to be a minister, mm-hmm. I was told never preach a sermon without consulting Kittel. Huh. Go to Kittel. My my Bible uh, college professors would say to me, have you checked Kittle on that? Did you go to Kittle on that? Find out what Kittle says about that. Nobody ever told me that Gerhard Kittle, this eminent theologian admired by Mm -hmm. Christians of all varieties, was Adolf Hitler's resident theologian who gave him the supposed theological justification for the genocide of Jews, Roma, gays and lesbians, uh, political opponents. He gave Hitler and the Nazi regime their religious cover. And in fact, after the war, Kittel was jailed by the Allies and died a committed Nazi. Now, why didn't anyone ever mention that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's odd. Is that something mm-hmm. to leave out of the man's biography? And I, I, I think there was reason that that was not discussed. Again, we try to sanitize our histories mm-hmm. and create false narratives, which is contrary to the very nature of Christ, who gives us the Christian faith. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And truth is sometimes very painful. And that is certainly true when you go back and look at the behavior of Christians, including leadership in Germany. And I'm not talking about, you know, some other church. We're talking about the Evangelische Kirche, the Evangelical Church of Germany. And it would go all the way to the likes of the Salvation Army, Baptists, Pentecostals, even pietists, pietistic Mm -hmm. communities, uh, the people we know to be the kissing cousins of Mennonites and Moravians and Brethren and others Mm -hmm. who went along to get along and whose own anti-Semitic impulses were given permission by the luminaries in in Germany's political life. So Hmm. when uh, Adolf Hitler and, and his henchmen would give these stirring orations uh, in, you know, massive assemblies in these gigantic sports arenas and so forth, 
what they did was they unleashed what had been contained until then. They granted permission. And so uh, when I was doing my late-in-life doctoral research, I took this late-in-life leave of absence from my work. I buried myself in research. I was writing for my dissertation. And uh, I was in a, a musty basement of tiny little faith evangelical seminary in Tacoma, Washington. Opening up the pages of books, I, I brought those to, I, I'm trying to be a good teacher today, and I'm bringing That's my right, yeah. <laughs> with me. It's a common good podcast, show and tell. Love it. Yeah, that's, that's uh, and, and I do have to show these because they're not in digital format uh, yet. I hope they will wow. be soon. But you got to kind of get these from the off-Broadway, uh, you know, used booksellers uh, <laughs> out there. But I highly recommend them. If anybody has any curiosity about the role of the churches in the Holocaust, it's really important we understand that. And, and let's keep in mind, Doug and Dan, we're not talking about ancient history here. Mm -hmm. That's right. This unfolded in some of our parents' own lifetimes. My dad was a young teenager when he started tracking what was happening in Germany and compiling that scrapbook. My mother, who was a little older than him, was approaching young adulthood when all of this started unfolding. My parents, mm -hmm. there are mm -hmm. still Holocaust survivors alive today. Yeah. So this isn't ancient history. This is just a little while ago. We just had a nun in France die at 118, and it's yeah. only been 90 years since Adolf Hitler took the chancellorship in Germany. So she was a young girl uh, when, when Hitler took power. So this is yesterday, not mm -hmm. eons ago. And we need to understand. So there's, there's a great book called The German Church Struggle and the Holocaust by a great uh, African-American uh, uh, scholar who's now passed, uh, and others. Um, so that's Herbert Locke and Franklin Littell, uh, The German Church Struggle and the Holocaust. But even more shocking than what they reveal uh, is this compilation called A Church Undone, uh, translated mm -hmm. uh, by Mary Solberg, which is all, uh, it's a compendium of original documents of the churches in Germany, many of them evangelical, but a whole array, most of them Lutheran, uh, supporting the Hitler regime, uh, and not only so, but collaborating with it in the extermination of Jews, uh, especially. One way that was done was by providing the mass murderous Nazi regime with baptismal records, which was one of the ways the Nazis discovered uh, Christians of Jewish extraction. Oh, wow. And they could only do that through baptismal records, which the church and many of its leaders willingly, without compulsion, uh, delivered to the Nazis to assist them in their search for Jewish blood 
uh, in the churches, starting with the pastors, by the way, starting with clergy who had Jewish uh, lineage. So you can see all this in uh, A Church Undone, and it includes the declaration by one of the most popular German Bible teachers of that day, Paul Althaus, who, you know, who would we, I don't know, he was kind of, uh, I can't think of a popular Bible teacher today. I don't even want to name one. That would be unfair. Yeah, right. <laughs> just to say, let's just say he, he had television been, uh, it had been invented, but it wasn't yet available. If it had been, he would have had a very popular Bible yeah. TV show. And Paul Althaus declared uh, when Adolf Hitler took power in Germany, he called Hitler and Nazism gifts and miracles from God sent to return Germany to its greatness. Now think about that and draw the parallels here. Yeah. So when there, I was doing... There, uh, there are two kinds of ways that people don't do good, right? What One is um, you're actively participating in that thing. That's not good. The other is that you don't use the power that you have to resist it. And a lot of people think, well, it would be better for me to be inside the system and trying to affect it from the inside than to stand up to, to it and be expelled. So I need to stay close. I need to serve inside in order to keep it from being even worse. We hear a lot of that in, in our society. It's a way that people explain their, their participation in things that, you know, I, I would put the Trump administration in there and a lot of people that would say like, well, I was trying to prevent things from being worse. If I were out, then they'd bring in somebody who didn't have my moral compass. So I was trying to serve from the inside to prevent. It can sound like a very reasonable thing. It maybe is a very reasonable thing. Was that kind of argument also made in the subsequent years from church leaders in Germany? we were going along because we knew how much power the Nazis had and we were trying to work for good in the midst of it. Is that the same rationale that was made in those times? Some, some did offer that uh, as a rationale. Um, I'll, I'll mention another here worth claiming. It's a very old volume on the German church conflict by Karl Barth, the eminent uh, German theologian. And he, he goes up against that. Uh, it, so it's worth reading how just a little while ago, uh, how he met with that sort of rationale. So some did offer that. Most okay. just decided, first of all, um, it, it, you know, it was a very different system back then. And most of the churches were part of the established Church of Germany. They, you know, it, it was essentially a government church, and the clergy were government workers. They were part of the federal uh, workforce, and they were afraid, frankly, of losing their, uh, you know, their their living, losing is, their job. Is that what they said to each other? Like, so you think, okay, by the 1950s, the story of the Holocaust is spreading. People are understanding it. It's in the popular world by the time, you know, I'm born in the 60s. There's full condemnation and critique. There's international trials of human atrocities. 
So in Germany, these same church buildings are still sitting there. Like it was just a series of one day after the other. Some of the same clergy, you know, 10 years, 20 years later are still in their congregations. Is that the kind of thing they were saying to each other? I was trying to keep my job or... And so I guess what I'm doing is trying to say, like, what do you know about the difference between what they say and maybe what's what really was the motivation there? Maybe it really was they're trying to keep their job. But how did they say it to each other? You know, because there's a sense in which you think, well, you pull the lens away and then you jump to the international trials and the condemnation. But every morning, these people wake up and walk to the bakery and there are the, you know, buying their bread and there's their congregation and they're having to come to grips with what was going on. How did they explain it? Do you know? How do they explain it to one another about the rationale of what you did or didn't do? Yeah, well, there's a good body of historical uh, data, research, even even uh, interviews with a lot of those church leaders and lay people. Uh-huh. Um, should I mention another? Yes, you should. <laughs> Give us like, a whole uh, reading list. Should, you oh, should, oh, yeah. Open, yeah, open I don't them up and start story time with Rob Shank. This is really worth a read if you want answers to that very question in depth okay. for the soul of the people. I'm not sure quite how to turn okay. that. There, there we That's go. great right there. Um, a Protestant protest against Hitler. Now, okay. don't read that. Uh, too optimistically, because <laughs> an awful lot of that protest was tepid, mm-hmm. uh, to say the best about it. Uh, but this is Victoria Barnett, uh, who recently retired as one of the resident uh, historians at the uh, Holocaust Memorial here in Washington, D.C., mm. and is one of the best scholars on this subject matter, but she interviewed many church leaders, um, both clergy and lay in Germany uh, in her research for this book. And you read some of those transcripts uh, in the, in the volume. So for the soul of the people is really a good source on this. And no, I I do think from what I've read uh, and what I can determine that some of those leaders did whisper that to each other during and after, uh, you know, the, the horrors of the Third Reich. But most would have said, we didn't know what was going on. They, they claimed okay. ignorance. Um, okay. Had we known, you know, had we known, we would have done something. Okay. But you ask, how could you have not known? I mean, right. sure. There were good information flows during those days. And we had people saying the same here. You know, uh, we'd love to think that America was right on this and, and righteous Mm -hmm. on this. It, 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 we were, we were, we knew about this. Mm -hmm. The, uh, the Roosevelt administration knew what was happening. Yeah, the highest levels. Yes long before any actions were taken. And, you know, as a frame of reference for me, when my father enlisted in the Air Force in, uh, in the early 50s, he was still required to register 
as a Hebrew. Wow. Uh, his race was marked as a Hebrew. And when he was inducted, he was told, Hebes, I'm sorry for the insulting reference, but this is what he was told. Hebes, and I'll, I'll truncate the next reference, he was told by his commanding officer, Hebes, go with the N-words. Wow. So th think about that as military yeah. culture at mm -hmm. that time. So while we'd like to think mm -hmm. that we were good on this, we didn't, you know, we weren't part of this. We went in there to defeat Adolf Hitler yeah. and to end the carnage and to end the anti-Semitic genocide. But in our own military culture, we were reinforcing it. Yeah. So, you know, let's get that all teed up to reality. Yeah, I just finished a book called The Escape Artist. Uh, it is an account of the first Jewish man to escape Auschwitz and uh, tell the world what was really happening there because the Germans were so secretive and trying to uh, you know cover up what they were doing. He escapes. He took you know extensive mental notes, keeping track of the number of Jewish people that were brought in and killed, and just horrific. But the thing that kept him going was, if I get out of here and I tell the world what's really happening, the world will wake up and come to the rescue. The Americans will come. They'll stop this. You know, Europe will unite. They'll stop this. So he gets free. He gets out. They put this report together. They start uh, sending it out. You know, they send it to the Catholic Church to the bishop. The bishop says, oh, my hands are tied because the Pope won't move on this. They send it to other church leaders. Oh, we can't do anything. And so this whole notion that if people know better, they'll do better just falls apart. And mm -hmm. Even when the report finally gets out there, it gets to the Americans, it gets to Roosevelt, it gets to Churchill, the inaction uh, is just tragic and stunning and horrifying. Mm -hmm. You would think knowledge would help us to make better decisions and do something about blatant evils, but we don't. What's what's going on there? And we see you know parallels today when people are faced with evil and they choose to ignore it or rationalize it away. Yeah, and I would include in there. You guys know that you know I'm in love with a dead German named Dietrich <laughs> Bonhoeffer. Uh, young, brave, brilliant uh, church leader from that period, one of the first voices to speak out publicly against Adolf Hitler. In fact, you can just about see him over my shoulder. Yeah, there see. he is. <laughs> <laughs> he keeps an eye on me, and I argue yeah. with him routinely. Uh, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a young pastor uh, and theologian uh, in Germany, during the rise of Adolf Hitler and Nazism. And he boldly spoke out. Uh, I think he was 20, I'd have to go back in time, but I think he was uh, uh, not yet 30 when he spoke out on radio and was marked, uh, was a marked man from that point on. He would later be jailed and eventually hanged at Flossenburg concentration camp at age 39. But I mention him because he knew very early on 
uh, through his contacts uh, what was happening in Germany uh, with the genocide shortly after the um, final solution uh, of the plan for uh, Jewish uh, genocide was launched. Uh, you know, here's Bonhoeffer, a, a pastor in Germany, who knows? Now he had family contacts who were working for the government, but there were, in other words, there were information feeds going out yeah. to the yeah. populace. Now, I, I want to give some folks back then and there, and even today, the benefit of the doubt, because it's hard to imagine the fear that was instilled uh, in the German populace uh, during that period. When I visited Auschwitz, uh, I had been to Dachau concentration camp before that, but it's not nearly the scale of Auschwitz. And I visited Auschwitz in, in 2010. And, you know, while I was there, I was talking to somebody who worked at that now uh, memorial to the horrors. And he lived in the community. And I said, you know, how is it that the people who lived around Auschwitz, who worked at Auschwitz, who smelled the putrid uh, smoke and saw the ash uh, laying, you know, everywhere on the trees, human ash, how is it that they didn't talk, you know, report this out? And he said, well, you know, many were quietly yeah. complicitous. Many were tolerant of this. Many had anti-Semitic impulses themselves. But he said more people were just terrified. Yeah. If they were discovered, they were afraid their own, they and their family members would be, mm -hmm. uh, would be taken to the camp and suffer similarly. So I want to give some some space there, you know, we don't know what that was like, but on the whole, and I'm going to go back to the church now, because that's my gang. And I understand it, I think, a little bit better than other sectors of society. So the fact that the church absented itself, hmm. and of course, there were many church leaders who were Nazis, who were big supporters of Adolf Hitler, who bought into the false promises of prosperity and freedom that uh, Hitler preached. And, and he was more of a preacher, I think, than anything else. He was a false prophet. Uh, and, and they bought in because it was in their self-interest to buy yeah. into that. So. You know, analyzing all this is very, very complex. But let's just say, had the church in Germany resisted Hitler en masse, if they had mm -hmm. done it by a majority or even a significant minority, Hitler likely would have failed mm -hmm. because yeah. the, the church then was still the cultural center of German life, both the church and the academy. The academy was better at resisting Nazism, mm. and they paid dearly for it, lost their jobs, uh, and some were jailed, and some were executed. They were more courageous 
than the church as a whole. So, you know, we can't assume that the church is always the moral spine of civilization. Yeah. I like to say when religion goes good, it's really good for societies and cultures. When religion goes bad, it's really bad yeah. for societies and cultures. And mm. I think in Germany, it largely went bad. There, there are so many, as you say so well, so many interlocking issues that are going on. You can imagine someone in Germany at that time, or Poland, or you know, in uh, you know, occupied Poland, and you say, "Well, what? Why didn't you say something?" And you think to yourself, "But to whom do you say something? Where, where, where do you go?" Like, <laughs> you know, it's it's hard for people in our society with many outlets, social media kind of outlets, or international connections through the internet, to do that. But if you're in Russia right now, if you're in Cuba right now, if you're in Venezuela right now, if you're in Nicaragua right now, if you're in a detention center uh, area in, in in southern United States uh, held by the U.S. government, you, there's no one to talk to. You you don't have those you you don't have those outs, and that seems to me to be one of the issues, is that the religious systems don't create these places for this. Uh, for, for this outflow. It it feels like it's something people only want to bring up when there's a crisis. It doesn't feel like it's part of the plan, right? That religious communities are going to be a fire alarm in a in a building, right? That you you can go there and pull it. Or Dan, is a story you tell when people do go there, then it's, you know, it's that emoji from, you know, with your palms up, like, I don't know, what what's what's a person to do, you know? Yeah. The system says no and there's there's nowhere to move. And and that's part of the systemic interlacing to the individual's experience is I really don't know what I would do or what I would say or where I would go or I someone tried uh, Shelley in the comments here mentions that people should watch this Ken Burns new documentary on immigration and he links the immigration narrative in the United States in the 1930s and 40s to our modern day immigration situation and how it's connected to the United States saying to Germany, we don't want P Jews and others from Germany to immigrate to the United States. And these interlinking issues of othering people and talking about them as someone who's unsafe and unhealthy and dangerous and all this is the same rhetoric that's that's going on. And I recognize that it's hard for people to say something about that. Like what um, to whom, you know, you think about our current immigration situation, and I think we have people on uh, one political party that are intentionally demonizing and our other political party, the Democrats, not saying enough positive things in enough places, enough times to counterbalance that. And you just feel some days like, well, what what more could you do? And what, what could you say? You don't feel like you're the person in power. That feels like it's really one of the dilemmas, right? That the moral conscience isn't connected to the people who could do something about it. You think about these people, you know, as you mentioned in the, in the town around Auschwitz, that what were, what were they going to do? Who were they going to talk to that was going to, that was going to make any difference. And that's, that's the shared like struggle that I think a lot of people can have with this, not, not just the condemnation narrative, like why didn't good people do something, but good people don't often have the means by which they can do something. And a lot of people feel that right now, right? Like, what can I do? And you think, there's, there's not a lot. How, how do you think about that? Well, um, I go back again to my, my dead friend over my shoulder. Uh, 
Dietrich, who uh, incidentally, those blue volumes behind me is the corpus of his work, uh, all his work in the Bonhoeffer Works series, English language, 17 volumes. Get it tomorrow. It's great. Get it by midnight tonight. <laughs> uh, start reading because he's more, he's more relevant today than he really was back then. I, I really think Bonhoeffer mm. was, um, you know, one of those souls uh, ahead of his time. And he really speaks to us today in a way that is so relevant. Uh, and so specific to what we are experiencing now. And one of the things Bonhoeffer warned was that the church in particular must speak early mm. and not wait until it's too late. Yeah. Mm. So while we have freedom, while we have security, while we have the ability to speak without serious consequence. I mean, come on, you know, yeah. when Bonhoeffer was risking his literal life to speak, you know, risking the tisk tisk disapproval of your peers doesn't really sound that frightening. <laughs> but let's get it real. You know, what do we really suffer mm. uh, when we speak? So speaking early, speaking while we are free to speak is extremely important to preserve our right to speak. But it's also about those people in Venezuela, Doug, that you mentioned, because they need allies yeah. in the free world. They need allies to speak for them. So you speak for those who cannot speak. And you marshal uh the forces of good to ally with with the folks who are who are suffering and and that's part of you know now i'm going to speak to my fellow christians that's part of what it means to be a disciple of jesus christ mm -hmm. christianity is not simply a culture it most certainly is not an ethnicity which some people confuse it to be it's not a race. Uh, it's, it doesn't have to do with skin color. It, it has to do with moral and ethical formation. It's how we live our lives in reference to the other person. Mm -hmm. So again, my dear Dietrich up there said, oh, he's over here. Uh, I have to get the, Dietrich, called Jesus the consummate one for others. He existed for the other, not against the other, mm -hmm. but for the other. Mm -hmm. And we have to be, as Christian disciples, disciples of Christ, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. ones for others for the folks in venezuela for the folks in ukraine for the folks uh in palestine for the folks who are who are suffering and cannot speak we will speak for them and that's mm -hmm. part of our spiritual exercise and how we develop ourselves yeah, right. ethically so that's that's kind of how i go after that question and and, so, and some of that critique from and call from um Bonhoeffer was biographical as well, right? Like he, he 
he was doing a lot of things at other times in his life and came to the United States and was a union seminary. And some of this was confessional on his own point, right? About how could and should we have organized? He's not lecturing only from a vantage point of, look, I've got to figure it out. I did it right. All of you should be more like me. There, there's a narrative of, hey, a lot of us took the you know, hit the snooze button on these these issues and kept moving on with our other work of spirituality, telling ourselves that was more important. And as it turns out, that was those were fatal flaws um, that were that, that that were part of that. Do, do I do I have that right? I mean, there's a yes, sense in and, which Bonhoeffer's not he's not a he's not a absolutely. biographical pattern necessarily here. There's a there's an oh, ethical no. call. And he's painfully honest about his own failings and shortcomings, particularly in his prison correspondence and his diary entries. And re please, folks, read about his own confession of anti-Semitism and his refusal to do the funeral of a Jewish family member and how he carried that pain into his prison cell and the deep regret and shame that he experienced over that. He's very transparent, very human, and very flawed. And you'll read that. Uh, this is not mm -hmm. a paragon of virtue. And he wouldn't want you to think that he was. He was just a human being, suffering with others and doing the best he could. And that's all he did was the best he could. And that's what he called others to do. Do the best you can, not, not more than you can, but the best that you can. Yeah. So some years ago, I don't know, a decade and a half, maybe there was a Bonhoeffer movie that was, that came out in kind of a popular release. Maybe you remember the years. I, I it all blends together. I don't know, middle 2000s somewhere. It was. Yeah. <laughs> that same year, there was a release of a documentary. Oh, uh, an interview documentary with Adolf Hitler's secretary. Did you see that movie called The Secretary? Yes. It is. It is a riveting thing to watch. She was like 19 years old when she uh, when this was all going on. So at this point, you know, she's in her 80s or something when this film was, and it was recorded a few years before it came out. So anyway, she's old by the time she's telling these stories. She's not connected to the Bonhoeffer stuff at all. She might not even know who he was in particular because Bonhoeffer's story has been carried by the Christian community and church and activist community. But she talked about how there was a plot to assassinate Hitler, which is the plot that Bonhoeffer was involved in, the placing right. of a bomb under a table. And that when, when that uh, uh, assassination attempt failed, because the bomb went off, but it didn't kill Hitler in the room, that that was the moment that she says Hitler doubled down on being the the very sent one of God, that he said he was, in her view, she said he was, this was all falling apart. They were going to lose the war. And then this assassination attempt happened. And then the religious people around him and Hitler and his team interpreted this as, this shows that God saved you. You need to double down on your efforts. And hearing her sort of describe that and knowing some of the other backstories of all the other characters that were trying to figure out what do we do? Do we break our pacifist actions to try to you know, assassinate Hitler and all of those things? 
it, it's this riveting human side to all of this of how actions are taking place and people are interpreting those to understand how they should move forward, right? And, and I was just really struck by both of these movies being out at the same time and kind of telling these stories and how the similar actions, the attempted uh, assassination attempt, as the Bonhoeffer side and then the secretary's version of what that meant to, to the Hitler team. And it really um, interlaces the moral complexities of what of what should someone do and how are these actions going to be interpreted and and where where the meaning is found and how people are going to decide who's on God's side here. Because you don't end up with the Holocaust without a strong narrative of people feeling that they're on on the side of the divine and that they have a holy calling and that they're what, what they're up to is not just their own work. Do you have do you have thoughts about that? Did you see that well, film or do you I did uh, I'll I'll suggest you have to be sort of in the mood and kind of get yourself, you know, centered and ready for it and sort of be isolated from other things, distractions, but it would be worth a kind of binge over a weekend of seeing the definitive Bonhoeffer documentary by Martin Dobemeyer, Bonhoeffer. Uh, it's in its 20, I think it's oh, 25th year, I think, but in any case, then the film you were alluding to, uh, Bonhoeffer, Agent of Grace, which is a drama, mm -hmm. and The Secretary, which is the documentary interviews uh, with Hitler's uh, personal assistant, uh, and uh, Ken Burns uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, on the Holocaust. Though those, those really help you to see what was really yeah, yeah. happening, because we all have a propensity for developing a kind of lore or, you know, we really want to improve the narrative and yeah, protect the story, uh, but it's imperfect. And, and I think by perfecting the stories and creating superheroes and supervillains and all the rest, we, we actually give ourselves permission to um, step out of the drama and become simply an audience because, you know, I'm not an actor. I can't get up on stage. I'm not a superhero. I'm not a, you know, the people I know aren't super villains. So I will separate myself mm. and simply watch the show as an audience. But in fact, the imperfections of all these people, their, their failings uh, and their virtues, their vices and virtues, let's put it that way, invite us into the mm -hmm. real human drama, which is wow. facing down evil. And we're going to do that imperfectly. And, and I think it's too much of an excuse to say, well, I don't have that kind of moral courage. I couldn't do what he did. You know, I'm not, I'm not in a place to sacrifice my life. And well, neither was he. I, I had the privilege of talking to the last living person who had spoken to Dietrich Bonhoeffer before his execution in the Flossenburg concentration camp, wow. Franz von Hammerstein. When I met him, he was in his 90s. He had all his mental faculties, but he was failing. And he had been a, a catechism student of a mutual uh, friend and famous pastor, Martin Niemöller, in Germany when he was arrested was put on the same prison transport 
truck as Bonhoeffer and ended up in an unexpected uh, stopover uh, where they were in a, what was essentially a cell together. And I asked Franz von Hammerstein, what do you remember from that last conversation with Pastor Bonhoeffer, he called him, before he was hanged? And he said, oh, he was very hopeful we would all survive and that we would go about the task of rebuilding the church in Germany. And I said, well, was he not preparing for martyrdom in those hours before his execution? And he said, no, not really. He was hoping that he would survive. So I think some of us think mm -hmm. of a Dietrich Bonhoeffer as just boldly resolving that I shall die. But he had nice. the same survival instincts we all have and was hoping mm. for a way of escape right up to the very end. So let's not lionize everybody and make them superheroes. Yeah. There are none. There are just people who do their best at doing good. And then there are people who don't. And, and let's just be those people who do our best to do good when and how we can do it. Yeah. Yeah, This we talk about this a lot in the podcast, that the construct of uh, heroes, villains, and victims is so powerful to people, and you get trapped in that world. It's most of us, and most everyone we'll talk to, uh, rarely see ourselves as the villain. We're often the hero, or if not heroic, then that's because we're a victim of something that prevented our heroism. There was some reason we couldn't be heroic. But rarely do we see ourselves as villainous, and rarely do we see someone who does wrong and evil and is the perpetrator of it as anything other than that, right? That we and those stories don't don't work, right? Um, this is I, for me the Christian gospel helps with that, and the Jesus narratives as a Christian help with that. The Jewish scriptures I know in in, in Jewish context help with that. That. These are morally complex circumstances and situations that people find themselves in. And the hero, villain, victim story doesn't last when you run it through the rubric of humanity or through, you know, those, those texts that it allows you to see that, that there's something more human going on. And yet when people face down evil and there's, you know, Holocaust Remembrance Day is a reminder of, of, of evil, right? It's, it's, it's proportional to other times in our society. You can look at other nations and other world affairs. You can think about, you know, Rwanda in the in the 1990s. You can think about China in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. You know, you can think about Stalin uh, in the 1950s. Like, the, there, and through history, just times. And nothing more obvious than both slavery and the taking of the land and the abusing of the indigenous peoples on this continent and all over the world, how indigenous people are treated. So that propensity to enslave people, to harm them, to kill them, to otherize them is so constant and present. And it's not an other time in another place. Sometimes the the hero, villain, victim story is just necessary to motivate us to, you know, stop, stop the bad thing. So I'm going to lay this last one on you here. If, if something as simple as hero, villains, victims don't hold up to the truth, is there a better frame that you know? How, sh how could and should we think about 
addressing the kinds of evil that go on systemically and individually with the desire to heal the world and make better? And like, what, what story should we be telling ourselves? Because these don't seem to be working. Well, certainly real stories, you know, we're, we're given to the exaggerations that, you know, you're alluding to. We, we love the colorful fictional stories and fictionalized stories. Hmm. If we just listen and attend to the, to the real stories of real people who did really heroic things, even in face of their own terror, their own feeling of inadequacy, uh, even if they did it, you know, imperfectly, they are to be celebrated and and realizing that we're never going to be able to do it perfectly. But this is why we need community. This is why we need each other. It's, it's tough to do these things singularly. Uh, Bonhoeffer did a lot of his work alone. He died very much alone. But there were a few. There were a few in, in his circle. And they needed each other, and they depended on each other, and we strengthen the best of each other mm -hmm. by bonding with each other. So where I'm weak, you're a little stronger. You know, where you are missing, uh, you know, a character trait, maybe I can shore that up, or, or we look for a third person who can do that. And so we need each other, and, you know, one, one more uh, mention a little drop in here. Uh, if you haven't read Bonhoeffer's first uh, dissertation, Sanctorum Communio, or uh, the Communion of Saints, read it. In which he says, "We for Christians uh, that are out there watching that we cannot know Christ apart from community. It's the only way to know our to practice our faith." And I think that goes with virtually all faiths that I know of, uh, that I interact with, that part of fostering faith is fostering community. So mm -hmm. being with each other, knowing each other, bonding with each other, acting with each other is really, really important because it's really the only way uh, that in yeah. the end we can really get something effective done. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, it's easy to think that community is a strategy toward an end as opposed to the the context in which the end can make any sense. It just doesn't make it to to reorient it in a in a way that it's not a thing you do to get to something else. Um and and that everyone needs to be included in that community. Right. Um, and that is, that is such difficult work. And as you say, like the, the work of finding the other and the other perspective is, I mean, it's just, it's just never ending. So, uh, Rob, I want to thank you for being a part of that, being those voices. Um, if, friends, if you, if you like this conversation, I would commend to you on, on our playlist on YouTube, our conversation with Rabbi Joseph Edelheit. Rabbi Joseph is one of my mentors and friends, and, um, he used to be a rabbi in the same town here in Minneapolis, um, where I am. And after he was not in that rabbinic role anymore, he was part of our community at Solomon's Porch and this teacher and mentor in our Christian community. And he, I remember when we first met, he said to me, uh, Doug, are you committed to the flourishing and the existence of Israel? 
And he wasn't talking about, you know, he wasn't doing political kind of work. He's like, because if, if you've never thought, I need to make sure that I am committed to the existence of the Jewish people and to a place on this planet that they can live. If that's something you just have thought, I don't know, like, you know, which is kind of where I was. He's like, that's a leadership and theological question that people in, that Christian leaders in America have to ask themselves because you can't move forward without, and he, w- he would say there's a number of other commitments that you need to also make. There's other, other communities that you also need to be committed to their existence and their flourishing, right? Um, and th- those are, so anyway, that, that conversation is, is available and is super important. We've talked with him on other uh, Holocaust Remembrance Days, so I'd, I'd commend, commend those conversations to you. And then if you know people um, to, uh, who are good at this conversation, invite them into it. And if you know people who aren't so good at it, uh, bring it up. I mean, one of the things about a holiday or a Commemorance Day or a Remembrance Day or a Recognition Day is at least gives you a reason to talk about it right? You can say like, hey, this weekend, you know, hey, this is this weekend of this Holocaust remembrance. And um, so someone's not like, why are you bringing up the Holocaust all of a sudden? Because I feel like, Rob, in our society, maybe you have thoughts on this too. It's a, sometimes the way we talk about Nazis and the Gestapo and stuff, we use it as like this shorthand for someone who's being bossy. Like, oh, we got the, you know, we got the soup Nazi or we've got the, you know, at work, someone's a Nazi or, you know, uh, Republicans say things that the IRS is like the Gestapo. And we use that shorthand in a way that feels like it diminishes. Like, there is not a parallel to Nazis. These are not Gestapo that are doing this. And, and somehow, and maybe it's, I don't know, because I watched Hogan's Heroes as a kid, and I'm still conflicted about whether I think that was a good idea or not. You know, whether a satirical mocking of the incompetence of the German army is should have been the fodder of my humor set as a, as a kid. But all this kind of work or all this kind of language that we use that minimizes feels like it's a problem. Uh, so I, I feel like we were landing there and then I just, you know, said, hang on a minute, we can't land the plane and we're, <laughs> you know, we're, we're back at 10,000 feet here. Uh, but just anything on that that you, that, that you want to comment on, uh, that you want to say anything about, about how we language this? Look, both sides of the political extremes in this country, both sides of the political perspective in this country refer to the others as acting like Nazis. When yeah, they use well, German Nazism and say, you are that. And I don't know, I just feel like that's a dangerous, that's a dangerous place. Do you, do you have, just quickly, I know we got to go, but do you have thoughts about the, any of that? Well, just quickly, I'll reinforce what you just said. You know, uh, this is not uh, Berlin in 1933. You know, we don't have another Adolf Hitler uh, today. But those unique uh, moments in time and unique scale of human suffering is instructive and we have to learn from it. So uh, sure, you know, again, making fun of it can be too casual a way to dismiss its importance and the implications of it. So let's be careful, you know, that a casual reference to a Nazi or comparison to a Nazi doesn't diminish uh, the enormous scale of what happened there, the uniqueness of the suffering and loss of human life and and to a whole people group. Uh, 
But at the same time, it's not so distant that we can't learn from it. So, you know, again, it's that delicate balance of reality. What is reality uh, here? And we can really learn from it. It's a warning. It, it is instructive about our, our impulses and how benign evil can appear to be. You, you know, early on you said Germany was, you know, a, a fully developed culture and society. It was certainly one of the best educated countries in the world. It was one of the most technologically advanced nations. It may have been the most technologically advanced nation at the time. Uh, it had, you know, some of the preeminent mental health pioneers uh, in the world, right. uh, and on and on, um, uh, including just a little sidebar, and I know we're really testing people's patience here by going on, but when you drive into, into Berlin today, you'll see the Bonhoeffer Institute. It's not named for the Bonhoeffer over my shoulder. It's named for his father, Karl Bonhoeffer, who was a famous psychiatrist in Germany, who Hitler uh -huh. tried to co-opt. And his own dad refused uh, Hitler's uh, co-optation of his practice for political ends. But all that to say, we can learn from these people and their experiences. And we must, because while we say there was only ever one Hitler, only ever one Holocaust, only ever one loss of all those millions of lives, and we can't compare it to anything else and diminish its unique scale. At the same time, it's not to say that another Hitler-like individual yeah. can't arise in a very sophisticated, cultural, uh, developed culture. They do repeatedly in small and large dimension. Mm -hmm. So let's just remember that reality in all of this mm -hmm. too. It's one of the reasons we can never forget. We must remember, and that's why we have Holocaust Remembrance Days, to remember the unique suffering, but at the same time to recall that this happens in other times and other places and will again. And we have to be ready for it, to, to meet that challenge. Yeah, and hopefully the church can speak out early, like you said, wherever evil is seen and whatever scale it's at appreciate that. Well, Rob, thank you. If you're interested in Rob's work, the Bonhoeffer uh, Institute, you can find it there. And his own uh, story is written in a biography called Costly Grace, which is a phrase borrowed from his spiritual mentor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And uh, you can uh, see see more of that. And then uh, the regular upgoing work. And Rob, we know you're, you're in the news now yourself for uh, lots of things uh, tangentially related to all this. So people's familiarity with you will just continue to grow and I hope they pay a lot of attention to all that you're up to and thanks for spending your uh, entire day with us here on the podcast <laughs> thanks, thanks well worth for tolerating well our worth. ongoing yes. alright Holocaust Remembrance Day let's uh, let's do that huh? alright we'll see you we'll see you next week bye everybody bye